stand. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Sodom Court has resumed the sitting for the dispatch of its business. God save the state and the Sodom Court. All right, we're now on the record. This is the case of NRA DLW. All counsel are in place. All parties are in place. We're ready to proceed. Uh, is everyone prepared for proceeding? Yes. Then let's go. That's how a court hearing starts, with the judge announcing the case and making sure everyone who's a party in the case is there for the hearing and is ready to proceed. We're now at the trial stage, which in a child welfare case in North Carolina is the adjudicatory hearing. At this hearing, the judge will decide, is this child neglected? If after considering all of the evidence, the judge decides the child is neglected, the case will continue. But if the judge decides the child is not neglected, the case ends. There's no predetermined outcome or guarantee of what the judge will decide. Even if a child was removed from his or her family, it doesn't necessarily mean the court will find at the adjudicatory hearing the child was neglected. In fact, in this episode, one of our two cases that we've been talking about ends. Welcome to season two of Beyond the Bench podcast by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm Sarah DePasquale and your host for season two, which tells the story of homelessness, neglect, and the child welfare system in North Carolina. During this season, we'll talk about what family homelessness looks like, whether homelessness is child neglect, and if and when it is, how the child welfare system responds to families affected by homelessness. We'll do this by following two court cases from the past year that address child neglect because of allegations related to homelessness. Each episode represents a different stage in the child welfare process, and you'll hear from lots of different people who will share the various perspectives in a case, including shelter providers, county departments, a parent attorney, the children's guardian ad litem, and the court. Let's recap. At the end of our last episode, in both cases where suspected child neglect had been reported to a county department, the department found neglect and started a court case. The department did that by filing petitions in the district court that were alleging the children were neglected, and in both cases the department asked for and got non-secure custody orders, which authorized it to remove the children from their homes. Remember, in North Carolina, a temporary emergency custody order is called a non-secure custody order. Attorneys were appointed to each parent in each of our cases, and guardian ad litems were appointed to the children in each of the cases. In today's episode, through interviews with district court judges, a county department of social services attorney, and a parent attorney, we'll talk about the hearing, the hearing where the court decides if the child is neglected, and what happens afterwards. Remember how this area of law has its own language, like non-secure custody order? Well, today, you're going to learn some more new terms. Adjudication, stipulation, dismiss, and disposition. Let's start with the adjudication. Judge Corpening explains the adjudicatory hearing. It's a trial as to the status of the child. Right. Um, and, and, and saying that, you know, we use the words in juvenile court, you know, we'll say adjudication disposition. But adjudication is like the trial in adult world that everybody is so familiar with. It's where we decide what's in the petition is true or not. Um, and then it's an adjudication of whether the child is neglected, abused, or dependent. So the court's making a decision about the child's circumstances or status, not about the bad acts that the parent has made. This is really different from a criminal trial, where the question in a criminal case is whether the defendant, who's been accused of and charged with committing a crime, is guilty. In the child neglect case, which in North Carolina we often call a juvenile case since it is about the status of the child, 
The court is answering the question, is this child neglected? And it's looking to the definition of neglect under North Carolina law when it's making that decision. If the answer is yes, then there's an adjudication. The adjudication is the child is neglected. If the answer is no, there is no adjudication and the case is over. The neglect adjudication is based on what the department alleged in the petition. Think of it like a snapshot in time. It's about what was happening before the petition was filed and what the department wrote in its petition. It's not about what's happened since the petition was filed. Judge Tyler Mack describes it like this. At the time this petition was filed, this was the status. It's not this now, but when this was filed, this is what was going on. Because if you just say that that they um, are dependent and they're neglected at the time and you just read what's in there, they're going to say, no, I want a trial. And it's just a matter of semantics saying, oh, back then, yeah, that was true. In both of our cases, the department wrote in its petitions that the children were neglected because they weren't receiving proper care and supervision from their parents, and they lived in an environment that was injurious to their welfare. In one case, the department alleged in its facts that the family was living in a van in the woods, there was not adequate heat or adequate food, the children did not have proper hygiene, and there had been domestic violence between the parents where the oldest child, who was only five, had intervened. In our other case, the department alleged in its facts that there was an 18-month-old who was living with his mother, but there was a history of housing instability, and currently they were living in the homeless shelter, but their time at the shelter was running out. Mom was using marijuana, and there had been a safety plan where both parents agreed that the father, who was convicted for indecent liberties with the minor, would not have contact with the child. But the safety plan wasn't followed when one day, the parents, after meeting at a bus stop, were riding on the bus together, and the child was allowed to sit on his father's lap. A court can only make its decision to adjudicate a child neglected or not, after there's been a hearing where evidence is introduced. Because the department is the one who filed the petition and the one who's asking that the court adjudicate the children neglected, the department goes first. It must prove the facts that it wrote in its petition are true and that those facts meet the criteria of neglect under North Carolina law. Sometimes everyone agrees to the facts, and when that happens, they can stipulate, which is a legal term for agree. They can stipulate to the facts. As Judge Siler Mack says, the stipulation is, I'm agreeing to these things because that was true at the time. When there's a stipulation, it's presented to the court, and in those cases, the stipulation is the evidence that the court will consider. In other cases, there isn't an agreement about the facts, or there is an agreement to some, but not all of the facts. When that happens, there's a contested hearing. The department has the burden of proving that what it alleged in the facts are true, and those facts meet the criteria of neglect under the law. The parents are trying to prove different facts, or that what the department is saying is not true, or even if it is true, it doesn't mean that the child is neglected. The attorneys will prepare for the contested hearing, and Jamie Hamlet, who's an attorney for the department, talks a little bit about how she prepares for a hearing. Either myself or my legal assistant draft the start of a witness and exhibit list, and we email that out. We ask the social workers to respond. We figure out what records we need that we require court order, like medical records or mental health substance abuse treatment records. We do a motion for those. 
we figure out if the children need to testify. We do a motion for remote video testimony equipment. You know, those sort of preliminary matters. I go back and review the allegations. I usually go through... We do very specific allegations in Alamance County. So, whereas, because we're a notice pleading state, you could technically plead something along the lines, the parents engage in domestic violence in front of the children, which places them at physical and mental risk. We do much more specific. You know, on December the 7th, the parents engaged in a physical altercation. The child intervened, and we'll list it that way. And we go through and we try to keep it in chronological order. I'll go through and try to identify what the major issues of concern are. Is it domestic violence? Is it substance abuse? Is it mental health? I'll try to narrow down the issues or the, the, make stipulations that aren't quite as specific and send out a draft to the opposing counsel. They send me back their responses. Some of the opposing counsels will simply use the allegations and send me responses um, and it's really amazing to me what people are willing to acknowledge is true. I had a case last week where the father was willing to acknowledge that basically all the findings were, or the proposed findings were true, but he wouldn't admit that it was neglect because he didn't see it as neglect. So we thought we were going to have to have a trial until we said, okay, so we all agree these are the facts and the facts are true. It's the judge's job to decide if it's neglect or not. And he was willing to do that. If we have to go to trial, I'm already pretty familiar with the case at that point. Um, if I can, time-wise, I'll try to reach out and call witnesses and talk to them. There are some witnesses who are just not going to testify, or even if you pull them into court. And you can sort of fill that out on the phone, and that helps you to say, okay, so these witnesses, these three witnesses aren't going to be very helpful, or to get them to be helpful, it's going to be more work, whereas these three witnesses are very helpful. So a lot of times by the time we get to an actual trial, I've taken a witness list of 16 people and narrowed it down to I'm only going to actually call five people. Dorothy Hairston Mitchell describes what the adjudicatory hearing feels like and how she prepares to represent a parent. I hate to say it like this, but even though it, the burden is on DSS, it doesn't feel like it is. It feels like, I mean, and we say this all the time, either a criminal defense attorney or even in these cases, it doesn't feel like they, they hold a burden. It feels like for our client that we're having to prove that they didn't do these things or they didn't miss an appointment or they didn't, you know, whatever they she didn't give the money my client didn't give the money to someone else and, and caused them to to lose housing she's having to prove that she didn't do that or prove that she you know can parent or whatever so I go into it with what all evidence can I gather who can I get to come in to testify on her behalf to show that she has um pay this amount this month and she is able at the school making sure the children are getting what they need at the school or she is making sure they get the transportation to their mental health appointment so I'm anticipating countering whatever DSS is able to provide as evidence or present as evidence and, and prove even though the burden is on them I'm like I'm not even going to worry about whether they meet that burden or not I'm going to show that she has done that and above. Judge Hartsfield describes an adjudicatory hearing like this. 
that there's enough evidence that's been adduced. Sometimes lawyers will have a trial and sometimes they'll stand mute. Sometimes they'll admit. Sometimes they'll deny. Um, there are three things that you can do. But, you know, generally with admissions, there's very little testimony. Uh, there is some. Generally, the social worker will tell how the child came into care. and There'll be some other kinds of things. For those that are contested, where the parents denying it, they're full-fledged here. And that's when we get the doctor. That's when we get the person that's trying to substantiate the injuries. And that's when it's, you know, the long couple of day hearings that can last a very long time. Um, but adjudication can, like I say, be long or short, depending upon what the parent um, admits or denies. The way something is proved in court is through evidence, and that includes things like the stipulations or admissions, but it also may be pictures, medical records, or other types of reports. And evidence includes witness testimony. Place your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. You solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Have a seat on the witness stand, please. The social worker will testify, and others will be called to testify. The child may have to testify. The parents may testify. Whoever it is that the attorney has decided has information that will help the attorney prove his or her client's case. Witnesses will be cross-examined, but ultimately the judge decides who is telling the truth. Who is it that he or she believes? And I asked Judge Corpening, how do you do that? My mama always told me, stop, look, and listen before you cross the road. And so at every step of the proceeding, I am, it's almost like trying to freeze moments in time, stop, and I'm looking, I'm watching every single person in there. I'm watching for reactions to what's being said on the witness stand. I'm watching for reactions to what lawyers are saying. And because that gives some insight into, into where they are, um, especially if it's, you know, a doctor's on the witness stand talking about broken bones, and I got a parent who's sitting over there shaking their head like those bones aren't broken. You know, there's there's communication that's happening there. They're saying, I don't believe that doctor, and 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 that's saying, I'm not coming to grips with what's happened here. And then and then when they're on the witness stand, I watch them, and I hope that they look at me, and I try to be inviting, you know, I try to smile. Um, but I'm watching them, I'm watching for their posture, I'm watching for their expressions, I'm watching whether they're looking down, and I'm listening to how they answer questions. Um, because, you know, we don't, we don't have a, a truth meter in our computers, you know, where we can hit enter and it goes, true. We don't have that. And so, over the years, just learning to watch people, watch their expressions, watch their mannerisms, listen carefully to what they're saying, listen to how they're answering questions. Um, you know, you can ask, like, what day is it today? Well, on Monday, let me tell you about what happened to me on Monday. Well, today's Wednesday. All I asked you was, what day is it? But they're avoiding the question. And that's, a, that's some, some insight into credibility. After considering all of the evidence, the judge decides if the child's neglected. Remember, the adjudication is that snapshot in time. So the judge decides this is what was put in the petition proved by the department? And if so, is that neglect? The court will not look at how things are now. It will not look at what the circumstances are now. It only looks at what the department alleged in its petition. In both of our cases, the department alleged that the children were neglected because they weren't receiving proper care and supervision from their parents, and they were living in an environment that was injurious to their welfare. And here's the thing. For an adjudication of neglect, the court needs to find that the child was harmed, 
or that there was risk of harm, whether that's physical or emotional or mental harm. If there's no risk of harm or harm, the child is not neglected. In one of our cases, the adjudicatory hearing was contested. The department alleged in its petition and introduced evidence that the child was living with his mom in the shelter, but they would soon have to leave. They'd had a history of housing instability and that the parents violated a safety plan where the father was not to have any contact with the child, but one day the mom and dad and the child met at a bus stop and while riding on the bus, the child was able to sit on his father's lap. But the department never showed that the child was harmed or that it was risk of harm to the child from either the housing instability or the one time where the child was with, was with his father and mother on the bus. Because there was no evidence of this harm or threat of harm to the child, and no evidence that the child was without any shelter or that the housing instability interfered with the mother's ability to provide care or supervision to the child, the court concluded the child was not neglected. The case was dismissed. That means it's over. If you think of it like a win and a loss, the department lost and the parent won at the adjudicatory hearing. After the case was dismissed, the child was returned to his mother and the department was out of their lives. In our other case, the parents in the department stipulated to facts. Some of those facts included that the family was living in a van in the woods, the van was cool enough to store milk, the parents had difficulty providing for the children's basic needs, including housing and baths, and there was domestic violence between the parents, which placed the children at risk and that one child had intervened. And the court decided, I find that the Department of Social Services has met its burden by clear and convincing evidence uh, based on the allegations of the petition that this child is a neglected juvenile. Now that the children have been adjudicated and neglected, the court moves to a second stage of the court case. So the first stage is the adjudication, and if the child is adjudicated and neglected, it moves on to the second stage, which is the disposition. The disposition is the court-ordered case plan, and as Judge Seiler Mack explains, I tell folks, um, we want to fix this. And you fix something that's broken, not destroyed. If it's destroyed, I can't fix that. But if it's broken or damaged or just messed up, you can fix that. In order to create a dispositional order, there has to be a dispositional hearing where different evidence is introduced. And that evidence can include things like what is going on now? What are the circumstances now? The dispositional order will address issues like who's the child's place with, What's the visitation? Who has decision-making authority? What are the services for the child? What are the services for the parent? And what are the obligations of the department and of the parents? Judges Seiler Mack and Hartsfield talk about a disposition. Dispositional phase is how are we going to work the plan, whatever that plan may be. The initial plan generally, generally is, generally is going to be reunification with the parent. But as time goes on, that, chance, that plan may change via permanency planning hearings and other hearings. But you set out what you hope is going to happen in the end. And you, you set up things for the parents to do in order to reunify with their children. That could be a myriad of things. If there's been some indication that there's substance abuse, there could be a substance abuse assessment. There could be psychological assessments ordered for the parents. There could be... Um, other kind of work-related kinds of things that parenting the parents, classes, parenting classes, you know, age-appropriate parenting classes and a myriad of things for the, the offending parent. Then there may be a whole other list of things for the, the father. If there's domestic violence, you may have to go to domestic violence training. So in other words, you're given this long laundry list of things that you must do to kind of prove or to try to let the court see that you are doing everything in your power to get these children back and not live in what brought them into custody forever. 
Judge Corpening explains the judge's focus when deciding what should be in the dispositional order. My first focus is going to be on the needs of the child. What does this child need? What are the needs of the parents? And then what do we need to do to get this group back together? What do we need to do to get this family back together? And how can we put all, the, all of those services in place? And that's got to be the focus, I think, at the initial disposition. The key to disposition, what guides the court, is a standard called the best interest of the child. But there isn't a law that says what the best interest of the child means, and there isn't a checklist to refer to. I asked Judge Corpening what it's like to figure out the best interest of the child. Probably the scariest thing I do as a judge, because that's ultimately connected to where this child's going to be, whether it's temporary or forever, um, and, and it's life-changing. So, so I try to look at what's happening in kiddos' life, what needs to happen in kiddos' life, and I put kid first. Um, and so in terms of what works best for kiddo, that's where it starts. And then, you know, in terms of, and, and that is everything from where's that child going to live, what environment is best going to promote the future for that child uh, within the confines that we have uh, of our law. Uh, I look hard at the educational issues. Um, their medical special needs, tragically, we have so many kids with, with profound uh, medical needs uh, or psychological needs. And how can we best meet those needs? Um, and then try to blend in parents' rights um, and see how we can make it all work as a family. But, but I start absolutely with what, what does this kiddo need and what can I do to make this kiddo's life work? Because we're really not doing case plans, we're doing life plans. Uh, and the life plan at the start is reunification and hopefully that's going to be the life plan. And if it is, then we, what, what do we need to do to make this work for this kid to really be in that child's best interest? And, and that's looking at pieces of a puzzle. And it's not always looking at a pie chart. It's like looking at a, a, a puzzle that has 500 pieces sometimes. And you dump it out of the box and there it is. Because that's what we see when we get a kid who has been profoundly neglected or abused. Is we've got a puzzle that comes out of a box and it's in pieces. And, and trying to identify which of those pieces are most important to make the puzzle work is, is what we do in looking at best interest. Every person involved in the hearing makes an argument and provides evidence for what he or she believes is in the child's best interest. But ultimately, the court has to make that decision and enters the dispositional order based on what the court believes is in the child's best interest. Dorothy Hairston Mitchell talks about planning for what the court may order at a dispositional hearing. Before we even get to adjudication, I'm telling my client, make sure you're going to school, make sure you're, you know, on top of the food in the house, make sure you have all the food in there every time. Did you go to Durham Housing Authority or wherever you count, but, you know, for us, Durham Housing Authority, and get on that list to get housing? Are you getting the vouchers for food? You know, make sure you stay on top of those things. Make sure you're going to all the appointments because we already know that when it gets, if it gets to disposition, you're going to have to do those things. So you may as well just start doing them and stay on top of it. So you'll just be in the, used to doing those things and you'll just continue on with them. In our one remaining case, where the children were adjudicated and neglected, the court made its dispositional order. The children were placed with their grandmother. There was a visitation schedule for the parents and the children. The parents were ordered to cooperate with the department in case planning and to complete certain assessments and to start domestic violence counseling. 
Tune in to episode four to learn about what's involved in the case planning with the county department and what happens next in court. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sarah DePasquale, and I'd like to thank the following interviewees who were featured in today's episode. Judge Corpening, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Siler Mack, Jamie Hamlet, and Dorothy Hairston Mitchell. This episode was produced by Stephanie Pankey and Duncan Yetman, with production help from Ben Trybulski. You can subscribe to Beyond the Bench on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to hear your feedback. To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. See you next time.